finishing up Galatians chapter 3. And we're dealing with specifically how faith, according to Paul here in Galatians chapter 3, is the means of our sonship or the faith is the means how that we become identified as children of God. And being children, we also are beneficiaries of an inheritance. Okay? He's making that connection to the fact that all of this means that we are included in the benefits of the promise that God has made to Abraham. That he would bless the whole world through his seed. In other words, Paul is making the point to these Gentiles that they too are recipients of that promise because they are children of God. According to faith. Because of faith. Okay? Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, listen carefully, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. How does God recognize his children? What they look like. Yeah. So if God looks upon Christ Jesus and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You remember, uh, you remember in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry. He comes to John to be baptized. This all takes place. The Spirit of God then does what? Comes upon him. The voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Later on, Matt, uh, uh, in the book of Matthew, you have Jesus and he goes up on the mountain and he takes Peter and he takes James and John. Jesus is transfigured there. He talks with Moses. He talks with Elijah. Peter and James and John hear the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Your text may say obey him. So God recognizes Christ Jesus as his son, as his child. And when we are recognized as children of God by God himself because he looks upon us and we look like what? We look like Christ. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, Starting in verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ, listen carefully, have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've done what with Christ? Put him on. You've put him on. Okay. You bear the likeness of who? Jesus. And so when God looks at you, he sees Christ, he sees his child. <coughs> There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are whose descendants? If you are Abraham's descendants, then the promise that God made to Abraham is for who? It's for you. Heirs according to the promise. So that's where that's where we're studying this morning. Uh, Shorty, would you lead us in a word of prayer, please? Now we just read. Uh, thank you. We just read Galatians chapter three, starting uh, in verses twenty six through twenty nine. And again, we're talking about how faith is the means of our sonship. Means is uh, faith is the basis for the inheritance that we have. Promises from God and the things that we enjoy. Uh, and as far as our current in the in terms of our relationship with God, um, but faith is the basis for all this. Paul is making the connection between the relationship that we enjoy with God through Christ Jesus and the promise that He made to Abraham, that God made to Abraham. And he's making that point so that the reader and the recipient of this letter will understand that the benefits of that promise do not come through the law of Moses. It comes through the promise that God made to Abraham. Now the law that was given, and we've already talked about this, served that promise. It was in order to expedite that promise, to bring that promise in into being, into fulfillment. Okay? So we're talking about faith, we're talking about promise, we're talking about inheritance, we're talking about relationship with God. Now, as we get into Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 5, Paul is going to deal precisely with the teachings basically of this these false teachings. Okay? These false teachers that have come in among the uh, Galatians. They are, they are very big on, as we will see as we get into Galatians chapter 4 and 5, they are very big on this idea of circumcision, of these Gentiles being observant to the law of Moses. And, and he's going to deal specifically with those issues. Going to be an important. It's going to be an important topic, uh, and we're going to and we're going to discuss those things. We are in the course of doing that. We are going to juxtapose this relationship that we have with God through Jesus and how we enter into that relationship with the specifics of the law, the specifics of this 
um, right of circumcision, okay? And we're, we are going to look at, compare, well, not compare, but we're going to contrast those things uh, as it becomes an issue. He touches on it, though, here at the end of Galatians chapter 3. When we get into Galatians chapter 5, we are going to talk more about it in depth, okay? But it is, it is a matter of fact. So if you would please look at Genesis chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 in just a moment. And I know that's a lengthy reading, but it, it's going to become an issue that Paul's going to deal with as we go forward. Not necessarily at the end of chapter 3, he's going to touch on it, but then he's going to come back to it in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, in his book, Wharton writes, Identifying the True Family of God. <clears throat> he writes, About 2000 B.C., God made the promise to Abraham that through his seed would come a special blessing of salvation to all the nations. We see this in Genesis chapter 12. We see it in Genesis chapter 22. Paul mentions it here in, in, in Galatians chapter 3. God then made a special covenant with Abraham's seed to be their God. Abraham's seed would be their God. As a consequence, at birth, the Hebrew became a covenant-related child with God. Okay? Because someone was born a Hebrew, they became part of that covenant that God had with the Hebrew people that he was working through them to bless the whole world. Does that make sense? And it is true that because someone was born a Hebrew, that someone was born a physical descendant of Abraham, they became a covenant. Uh, they became, uh, they were part of that covenant simply by means of their birth. Okay? In Genesis chapter 17, uh, he details this. About 1500 B.C., God made a covenant with Israel as a nation to become his own special people. We read about this in the book of Exodus. As God delivers them, the Hebrew people from Egypt, and he leads them towards uh, Canaan, uh, and to uh, inherit uh, the land. Indeed, Israel was distinctive. The religio-legal economy was unique in the earth. We've already talked about how the law that God gave to the Hebrew people was unique and that it was a testimony to the rest of the world about not necessarily the uniqueness of of these people, but the fact that God is the one who makes them unique or sets them apart to be different. Thereby the world learns of God and learns of the holiness of God. They become a testimony to the rest of the world. 
she was set apart from the rest of the nations as a special people chosen of God with circumcision as the divine token of that relationship. It was a physical mark. Okay? <clears throat> this special relationship was for a special purpose, the bringing of the Messiah. That was the purpose of the Hebrew people's relationship with God, that God might bring the Messiah into the world. Abraham's seed. Before Israel was a nation, indeed before time began, God intended to expand his family through the Messiah to include all nations. He would accomplish this through Christ and the cross and the gospel of justification by faith. With the coming of the Messiah, Israel and the law had served the promise to its fulfillment. Though the principles of righteousness and morality enunciated in the law remain. Did you catch that? Listen carefully. Though the principles of righteousness and morality enunciated in the law remain. So when the law speaks of righteousness, when the law speaks of morality, this is true and this is enduring. Okay? Morality does not change. The things that constitute immorality do not change. Sin is still sin. Even as they existed prior to the law. Because remember, the, the law of sin and death predates the law of Moses. In other words, the consequences of sin existed before God gave the law to the Israelites. The law as a legal system of national governance was abolished at the cross, though, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Since the cross, Israel, having served her messianic purpose, is no longer specially related to God as the theocratic nation, either by national covenant or by Abrahamic lineage. God's new family, the church, according to the Abrahamic promise, includes people of all nations and become the new theocratic nation, 1 Peter chapter 2, when he talks about you are a royal priesthood chosen by God. Okay. His special family by faith in Christ in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, Paul redefines the identity of God's new family. Okay? But let's read in Genesis chapter 17 what God has said to Abraham and this uh, covenant that he has with him and this uh, special symbol that he gives. Now, when Abraham, uh, excuse me, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And that's precisely what the name Abraham means, father of a multitude. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And this is where a lot of people trip up and say, well, they're talking about, talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. But the, prom but the covenant that he's talking about is the promise that the whole world will be blessed. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, and he has broken my covenant. Again, a testimony to the world that God was doing something through this people. Okay, that he is going to accomplish something through these people. A sign. The sign of circumcision. It was for the Hebrew male who was born. And on, his, on the eighth day after his birth, he was circumcised. Not only that, the foreigners in the house of Abraham, in the house of Israel would also require to be circumcised. Any of, any of the slaves had to be circumcised. If, 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 if a Hebrew went out and purchased a slave, that slave was to be circumcised. This, this mark, this marking of this identity was to be a testimony to the rest of the world that this people is di are different. Okay? And that God is working in them. Okay? Now, going back to Galatians chapter 3. Paul talked about being sons of God by faith in Christ. In the Greek New Testament, the words for son and children are different words. Okay? When, when the New Testament uses the word son... It typically means the adult child, the adult offspring, uh, the uh, 
the one who would be, uh, benefit from the inheritance, the heir. Okay? Children, the, when the New Testament uses the word children, that's specific when they're talking about a young child. Okay? If it, uh, in that particular language, the distinction is made. Okay? Worth conveying a different status for each. Children are under guardianship. They are not of age to inherit the father's estate. Paul will make that point in Galatians chapter 4. They have neither the legal status nor the privilege of full-grown sons. Okay? The teaching of Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, that we become sons of God and heirs of the promise by faith in Christ at baptism, grows out of this figure of a child coming of age and receiving the inheritance. Does that make sense? Paul's talking about a specific point where we actually receive our inheritance. We actually receive our blessing as children of God. Do you remember when Jacob uh, was... Uh, passing away and all his sons came and he and he gives and he's giving the blessing to each and he's telling each he's telling each uh, son you know you're going to have this portion of the land uh, this will be this will be in the inheritance of your people or your tribe you understand it's you know he's he's, he's talking to his full grown sons and he's and he's explaining to them what their inheritance is and what their blessing will be to each tribe. It's the same idea. Okay? At this point that Paul's talking about, we receive our inheritance. We are identified as the full-grown children of God. Okay? The other point that Paul makes here is critical. We are sons of God by faith at baptism. That is precisely when we become identified as the son or the, the full-grown child of God. Look, at, look again, it says there in verse, uh, verses 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, we at what point precisely do you take on the likeness of a child of God? At baptism. At what point is it that you, in the eyes of God, appear to him as his child, Christ Jesus? Now, if there's another there's another finer point that has to be made here, uh, Sam. It's when we this connection between faith and baptism. Okay, when and, and when we get into chapter five, we're going to talk about baptism and circumcision and physical works. Okay, doing a work and the working of God. And faith. Okay? The works of man versus the works of God. And how faith uh, enters into all that. 
But do you see the connection that Paul's making between faith and baptism? <laughs> what is that connection? <coughs> Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So do you see do you see the connection here that he's making? Sons of God by faith at baptism. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo, and I know that Scots talk a lot about that. But the word that we have in our English language, baptism, is actually not a translation, it's a transliteration. Where all we did was take the Greek word and make our English word sound like the Greek word. But it's not, baptism is not actually the definition of baptizo, okay? It's, it's just simply taking the Greek word and making an English word that sounds very close to it, the sound of it. But the actual, def but, but most often when we're talking about a translation of a word, we're talking about taking a word and then making the English word appropriate to the definition of the word. The definition of the word is immersion. Baptism is the transliteration of the word. Immersion is the translation of the word. Okay? As used in both New Testament and non-Christian literature, the word means to dip, immerse, plunge, or sink. We should think of this baptism in water as a command to be obeyed to become a son of God, according to what Paul says here in chapter 3. What he's saying is, is that is precisely when all this occurs. It's precisely the point in time that God identifies you as his child. Because you have put on the likeness of Christ. This is distinct from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a promise of empowerment for a select few in the first century. We don't obey promises, we obey commands. The word baptism is clearly not a translation corresponding to this definition. Baptism is more like a transliteration in which the sound transposed into the vernacular. In point of fact, the word baptism has no distinctive meaning outside of the theological or church context. And what he means, what word means by that is when somebody says baptism, and, I, and I'm talking about in the whole umbrella of religion, they're thinking about when someone is baptized or they're sprinkled or they're, uh, you know, Pour, they, somebody pours some water. That's 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 the only place that word has any meaning, any context. But it should have been translated in any English version. It should have been translated into our modern Bibles to correspond with the first century definition, which is when he was commanding commanding baptism that they actually commanded immersion in water. The Greek word baptizo means to immerse into water. So immersion is the proper understanding. 
This is not a matter of interpretation, but a matter of definition. Thus, Paul reminded the Ephesians how they were cleansed by the washing. Okay, in Ephesians chapter five and verse twenty, starting in verse twenty-five, Paul says, "Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word." The word, the English word, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and the word washing there is bath. The Greek word is bath. He gave her a bath in water. That would be the most literal translation of that verse. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Was that the first bell or the second? second. Okay. We'll uh, we'll pick up the.